Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone on this first Sunday in 2024. I'm Pastor Michael Eastman, as, as Gall said, and, and uh, Pastor Michael Birchfield was planning to be here this morning, and for all those that are disappointed that Pastor Michael Birchfield isn't in the pulpit, I can tell you none more than me. <laughs> but we are truly grateful that um, following a really bad reaction, I guess, to some medication and a trip to the hospital, he's doing much better. Uh, he's home resting. So we're grateful for everyone's prayers and uh, encouragement. And Pastor Michael says to pass on his greeting to the church, and we look forward to the next time he's able to be in the pulpit. Well, and getting the news that I'd be preaching this morning, the next step is you'd step right into our, our, our next text in the book of Acts. And, you know, it's one of the great things about teaching straight through one of the books, as opposed to topically, is you always know what's next. You don't have to spend any time thinking about what you're going to present, what you want to say. You simply turn to the text and God shows you what he has to say to us. So we are at chapter 4 in the books of, book of Acts. And, you know, I've said this before, but as you know, in, in Luke's historical account of the Acts of the Apostles, you know, the, the scale of the narrative is really vast. It doesn't take place in, in, in a single church or a single location. It takes place across the region of the Mediterranean in numerous cities and taking into account multiple numerous characters. It's a record of the early progress of the gospel as Jesus' disciples spread the message throughout the Mediterranean world. And because of that, it's helpful to step back occasionally and remind ourselves of the context that surrounds the text that we're in. So picking up at the end of the gospel accounts, Jesus, the apostles believed to be the Messiah, the very Son of God whom they followed for three years. This Jesus was inexplicably, or so they thought, arrested, tried, and executed. Peter, confused and perhaps disillusioned, fails Jesus at Jesus' darkest hour, though he said he never would. For all the disciples, the moment is a moment of crisis. Jesus, the one who they believed to be the Savior of the world, hung on a cross, made for traitors and criminals. In the end, only some faithful women and associates of Jesus stood at a distance for the execution. This gave prophetic voice to Psalm 88.8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. In the aftermath, confusion and, a, and doubt abounded for the disciples. At Mary's declaration that the tomb was empty, Peter dared to hope and dashed to the grave to find it indeed empty. 
In the days ahead, the disciples remained behind closed doors, unsure of their future and fearful of the unknown. They had seen what the power and hate of their rulers could do. Would their fate be similar? And suddenly, Luke 24, 36 records, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit and they said to them, why are you troubled? And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Jesus reassured them saying, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Suddenly it all became clear. All had occurred according to God's perfect plan. And as Peter would later declare to a crowd on the day of Pentecost, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and mighty and, and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. On the day of Jesus' ascension into heaven, you remember that he had charged them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. All this was confirmed on the day of Pentecost with the dramatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit and Peter preaching his first message boldly proclaiming the gospel and the risen Christ to the crowd. The response was immediate and dramatic. The temple crowd cried out, brothers, what shall we do? And on that day, roughly 3,000 individuals joined the church in repentance and baptism. Now, as Peter finds himself some months later in chapter 3 and 4 on the Temple Mount near the beautiful gate. We really don't know what the disciples' exact expectations were, but we do know this. They were experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit that had been poured out upon them as Jesus had told them. The apostles' message was having a profound impact as they demonstrated wondrous signs and performed miraculous healings. And as Luke describes at the end of chapter 2, they were all praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Now, if I were them, and I'm definitely not, I might be tempted at this point to think, this is great. I like this plan. This is working. The Holy Spirit has empowered us to accomplish amazing things. We have favor with all the people, and the church is growing faster than we ever imagined. But as we shall see, that is not entirely God's plan. Coming to chapter 4, we find the dynamic changes pretty dramatically. For the first time since Jesus' ascension into heaven, the church is going to face opposition. So join with me as I read chapter 4, beginning of verse 1 through verse 22. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened.
for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So looking at our text, what I'd like to do is just see what we can learn from this experience, this first experience of the church confronting major opposition. And I think one of the first things we, we can say is that we need to expect opposition. Certainly the apostles knew the message of the resurrected Christ would not be received well by the ruling Jews. But things had been going pretty well. The disciples were experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. They were finding favor with the people. Church was growing, it was united. But notice how quickly circumstances can change. And as they were speaking to the people, and remember, this is immediately following the healing of a man everyone knew had been born lame and was 40 years old. There was no saying, well, he, you know, probably had a sprain. This was serious. Everyone knew the circumstances. But the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And I think here's the lesson for us. We don't always see opposition coming, but we should expect it. The apostles knew by experience Jesus divides. For three years they had seen it happen. You remember when in Matthew chapter 10, it says Jesus called to him his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast, out, cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. But he warned them there would be opposition. He made clear their expectations, saying in verse 34 of chapter 10, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. The Protestant Reformation is really a perfect picture of this. If you're familiar with the reformer, Martin Luther, at his trial, he said, I know the discord that has arisen because of my teaching of the gospel. But far from being dismayed by this, I rejoice to see the gospel becoming once again a source of disturbance and disagreement. Such is the character of God's word. Luther knew that for centuries the medieval church had suppressed the truth and kept men ignorant of the word of God. In fact, in this time, to translate the Bible into a common vernacular for the common man was punishable by death. For Peter and the apostles' message, Christ crucified, risen from the dead, brought the apostles into opposition with the religious leaders of his day. And we should anticipate opposition, excuse me,
tugging a little bit there. We should anticipate opposition even as the apostles. And I think what we can see from the text is that we should also trust that God is always working. Look at verse 4. In the midst of this, verse 4 says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Can you imagine? That's a sermon. It would have been easy for Peter and John to be discouraged at this point. And yet, what God was doing in spite of the opposition was astounding. The tally of the 5,000 men who believed, you could assume, was probably discovered sometime later. No one took account at that moment. So, for all Peter and John knew, they only saw opposition. Here and now, discouragement and opposition. Perhaps you've had a similar experience. Perhaps months or years later, you receive a call or hear from an old friend you'd shared the gospel with and how it changed their life. And you never had a clue that that was going on. You might have thought it fell on deaf ears. We never quite know what God is doing, do we? As Paul said regarding his ministry, speaking to the Corinthian church, chapter 3, verse 6 of his second letter, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. The Christian life can often feel like an uphill battle at times. And Paul did promise all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. So I think what we can see is that we need to trust that God is always working. We need to expect opposition. And we need to be prepared to understand that opposition can at times seem overwhelming. I can't imagine when these leaders and the council suddenly rush from the temple upon them. In verse 5, it says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. This wasn't simply a temple guard asking them to move on. Right? This was the entire synagogue dream team in force. Peter and John were suddenly confronted by the leading names of the entirety of the ruling class of Jerusalem. You may remember it was the Apostle John himself who tells us in his gospel the account at the time of Jesus' arrest. It says in chapter 18, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, 
It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. I cannot imagine anything more intimidating for them to be standing in the temple gate confronted by the very men most responsible for the arrest and execution of Jesus. Well, what about your circumstances? Perhaps you're the only Christian in an unbelieving family or one of only few believers at work. You may even work in an industry hostile to Christianity. It's easy to sometimes feel alone and isolated as a believer. I can share, for a time I I worked in a company that was saturated in the hardcore Harley biker culture. I found it hard at first to find a Bible study. But in truth, as time went on, I, I made many dear friends and I did find other believers there as well. And we have to remember it's easy to become defensive and withdrawn when we are opposed with anger or insult. That's why Paul the Apostle would counsel the Corinthian church, when reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure, when slandered, we entreat. Or Peter himself, reflecting on Jesus' response to the opposition, said in his first letter, chapter 2, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So though opposition can be overwhelming, we see next in Peter's response is that God enables filling Peter with the Holy Spirit. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined concerning a good deed deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Don't we all wish we can respond in situations of duress like Peter did here? How did he, how did he do that? Is he brilliant? Is he clever? Is he both? We know he's a fisherman. He can tie good knots. Or did God provide Peter what was needed? Maybe he remembered back to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. 
When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how Peter did it. Even the rulers were amazed. It says in verse 13, now when they, the rulers, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Can we respond similarly? I believe so. We are told to walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, to not quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. The Holy Spirit fills those who walk in fellowship and obedience. Does Peter study? Does he meditate on the scriptures? Of course he does. He probably has a read through the Bible in a year plan. It's probably even bigger than that. But it is the Holy Spirit that enables us to speak with boldness and to say what should be said and to not say what shouldn't be said. Well, not only was Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, we see Peter here taking a bold stand. And that's a lesson for all of us. Peter does not seek to justify or defend himself or claim his rights. He simply but boldly proclaims the truth regarding Christ. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter also does not moderate or domesticate his message for his listeners. He pulls no punches. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, what did Peter mean when he said, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. You might remember, perhaps about a month ago, Pastor Michael was taking us through some introductory material for the nativity story. And he talked about the intertestamental period. That's that period in between the last book or the time that God spoke in the Old Testament and the time in the New Testament that we see God clearly evident working in his people again in the Gospels. It's about a 400-year period of silence. Israel had been judged by God for their sin and idolatry. They had been conquered and exiled from the land. The Jews had begun returning and they were determined not to let this happen again. They had built up upon the law of Moses a religious system of works to control the people 
and legislate righteousness. Peter, quoting Psalm 118, is telling them by rejecting Jesus, they have rejected God's plan. The Christ in whom salvation alone is found. And in a sense, everyone who opposes Christ opposes him for their own system, don't they? Their own way of righteousness, their own way of coming to God. Paul would respond, for there is one God and there is one mediator mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5. And Jesus said himself in John 10, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by any other way, that man is a thief and a robber. And again in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Peter speaking of our invitation to come to Christ, would later say, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. We are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, Christ being the chief cornerstone. But the reality is, opposition to God is truly blindness to God. Even when a miracle is standing right in front of you. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. What causes such determined opposition? Paul attributes it to our own unregenerate fallen nature apart from Christ. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. All this can be discouraging if you are sharing Christ and you're met with only opposition. But what are we, what are we called to do in the face of opposition? And I think we see it here in Peter's example in verse 19. We are called to speak of what we know. It says, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God 
to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Folks, the world opposes the truth. And at times it can, it can seem the world is truly gathered against us. The flip side is that the knowledge of the truth changes everything. I'm going to close and share a few verses here, and I hope they are encouraging to you. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or 2 Timothy 2.24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent, opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And lastly, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 5. His divine power has granted, granted to us all, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Would you pray with me? Father, we see this scene of Peter and John and their faithfulness declaring Christ, declaring Christ risen. Father, we recognize that in different ways we will almost certainly face opposition as well. Father, help us to be bold, to trust that you are always working. Father, to always be relying on the power of the Holy Spirit and not, not our own cleverness. To speak of what we know, to speak the truth in love, in clarity. Give hope of salvation, the forgiveness of sins through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be obedient, to trust you. 
And Father, as we see your gospel spread throughout the world and we see the coming of Christ each day ever closer, Father, may we seek to share the knowledge and the truth of God to those around us. And Father, even some may be saved. We thank you that you are patient. You are patient and willing that all would come to repentance and salvation. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, thank you for being here this morning. And Lord willing, Pastor Michael Birchfield will be back in the pulpit soon. But uh, continue to pray for his, his recovery. It sounds like it's a pretty bad bout. And, um, and, and, and we're praying for his, his soon recovery. God bless you guys. Enjoy your first week of the new year, 2024. Go in peace. You're dismissed.